Coming up, Michael continues his look at Disneyland in the 1990s. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 652, for the week of February 19th, 2017. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by my good friends Nancy Johnson. Hey! Mary Jo Mulata Willie. Hello. And <laughs> there are some crazy things going on in the chat room. And Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, hi there. <laughs> I almost made it through. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh alright so the 1990s I'm blocking the chat room now um <laughs> Michael Do say, save us save us no you don't <laughs> okay alright so for, the, for those of you who don't listen live and, and listen to what happens between the two shows you are missing out so Sundays, yeah. 7 p.m. Pacific. Listen. All right. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well. Oh, my. <laughs> we are now halfway through the Disney decade, mm-hmm. which Michael Eisner stated would be a massive investment in the California and Florida Disney resorts, including new attractions in each park, new theme parks, and new resort hotels. However, several events would cast a dark shadow over Disneyland and the promised optimism of the Disney decade. Uh, that includes the heavy debt and financial underperformance of the recently opened Euro Disneyland in Paris, France, the death of Frank Wells, and the departure of the chairman of the Walt Disney Studios, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and the appointment of Paul Pressler as president of Disneyland. So in our last episode, I talked about two expansion projects the Walt Disney Company had proposed for the Southern California region, um, Port Disney at Long Beach and Westcott in Disneyland's parking lot and surrounding property Disney had acquired. Now, Walt Disney himself had hoped to construct a second theme park next to Disneyland. And for an expansion of Disneyland to move forward in the middle of a recession, the Walt Disney Company required government assistance. So despite budgets being tight, federal, state, and local politicians fully cooperated. A California governor, Pete Wilson, approved $60 million in state funding, and the city of Anaheim rezoned the area and increased the hotel tax to cover the cost of infrastructure improvements. However, at the Walt Disney Company, the expansion plans are getting a second look and heading into a new direction. Now, Kenneth Wong had been in charge of the expansion plan, but in 1995, David Malmuth, who had been in charge of the Port Disney project, took over. And the first thing he said was, we have to figure out a project that works financially and that is also a creative home run. The team went back to the drawing board and by the end of January realized they could not come up with the right answer. But one thing was for certain. Westcott was dead. 
The Walt Disney Company declined options to purchase six parcels of land, including the 10 acres of the former Melody Land at Harbor Boulevard and Friedman Way, where the company had planned to construct a 12,000-space parking structure and transportation center. The reason Malmuth gave to the Anaheim City Council was, at today's land prices, these options just were not economic. It did not make sense given the price. According to Paul Pressler, what we had originally envisioned was a very large resort. What we are looking at today is the ability to break it into component parts and build on it. We are going to build a second gate, absolutely. Marty Scalar was not disappointed to see Westcott abandoned. I prefer not to spend six to seven years of my life on something that's already been done. Mm, yeah. yeah, so, well, anyway. We'll get to that. <laughs> However, the future still looked good for Disneyland. It was 1995, and Disneyland started its 40th anniversary celebration called 40 Years of Adventure with a brand new state-of-the-art attraction. Imagineer Tony Baxter was summoned back to Burbank in 1992 before the opening of Euro Disneyland to work on what was to become one of the most innovative projects of his career the Indiana Jones Adventure Temple of the Forbidden Eye, the first attraction to open in Adventureland in more than 30 years. Back when Imagineers were working on Star Tours in the mid-1980s, concepts for an Indiana Jones attraction were under consideration. There were so many stories and situations in Indiana Jones mythology, Imagineers are finding it difficult to choose one, and many different proposals were submitted. The first obvious choice was a runaway mine train hearkening back to one of the most memorable scenes in the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom film. But Disneyland already had a runaway mine train attraction, the Big Thunder Mountain Railway. And ironically, the Big Thunder Mountain Railway attraction was the inspiration for the famous climactic scene in that film. And the mine car sound effects in the film are actual recordings of the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. <laughs> so how else? Yeah. Yeah. So, so how else would guests experience the adventures of Indiana Jones? By riding another prominent vehicle in the films, a troop transport which had played a key role in several scenes. Then the next question was, what would the attraction actually be? Although the film series took viewers on many different adventures, in Disneyland, the story would be set in the jungles of Adventureland. So the Imagineers asked themselves, what would Indiana Jones discover in a jungle? And the answer was a mysterious lost temple. Then the designers had to determine what would be in this attraction. Lots of options were considered. At one time, the designers had troop transports exploring the interior of the temple before emerging and traveling along the edge of the Jungle River. For a time, the Jungle Cruise launches were to make a sharp turn and cruise through the temple to encounter who knows what. Then another concept had the Disneyland Railroad chugging across a rickety bamboo bridge high above the interior of the temple. At one point, the attraction was going to be a runaway mine train roller coaster careening through the temple. For a while, there was a concept that would create the largest attraction ever created for a Disney theme park 
in which the Disneyland Railroad, the Jungle Cruise launches, the troop transports, and the runaway mine cars would all be included in the attraction. But physical and financial realities quickly sunk this extravagant concept. After five years, a full and complete vision for the attraction was realized. Now, keep in mind, this was the dawning of the age of video games. More and more people wanted to interact with their entertainment rather than passively watching it. So the Imagineers began thinking of ways to add interactive elements to the Indiana Jones attraction, but came to the conclusion it wasn't practical to expect a dozen troop transport passengers to work together and perform any sort of meaningful interaction. So they took the opposite approach. What if guests in the troop transport were told not to do one thing in any group? There's one person who's bound <laughs> to do the opposite of what they're told. Nancy. And <laughs> no, even though I was thinking that, no. <laughs> well, I'm really a rule follower. <laughs> and well, and therein lies the adventure. <laughs> Out of this idea came the mythology of a powerful god who had bequeathed temple visitors with the gift of eternal youth or never-ending riches or knowledge of the future if they didn't look into the eyes of the idol. If even one person in the transport peeks at the idol, then the entire group will be plunged into eternal doom. Tony Baxter wanted guests to have the experience that the ride was completely out of control. He said, it's hard to believe you are about to get eaten or destroyed by something or someone if you can see the track bypassing whatever the threat. You consciously know you will follow that track and survive. So Tony wanted a ride that had a mind of its own. He wanted the ride vehicle to seem to have the ability to think and to react to its environment. I wanted it to appear to stop and think as it stops at a junction or bridge. I wanted it to look like it was thinking about what to do and then do the unexpected. So what Tony Baxter would design was an innovative enhanced motion vehicle. Combined with the light sounds and special effects, the attraction was to be capable of providing 160,000 ride experiences. How many do you think you've been on over the years? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the working title of the project was Project Thor. Now, Tony Baxter returned to Paris for the opening of Euro Disneyland as the development for the Indiana Jones concept continued. And by the time Tony returned from Paris, prototypes of the troop transports, along with several key elements of the show, were being mocked up on a test track in a giant warehouse 30 miles north of Walt Disney Imagineering near Six Flags Magic Mountain. So much of the attraction was in place in this warehouse that it was possible to ride through large sections of the attraction almost two years before it opened. Wow. So Michael Eisner wanted to see everything and experience a couple of mocked up effects. He loved it. He he joked that he wanted to go to the Six Flags parking lot and put little notes in the uh, in the on their cars, telling them if they wanted to ride a real thrill ride. <laughs> <to> their house. <laughs> 
Is that the first time we've ever we'd ever had ride vehicles like that? Yes, those were the first ones. Uh-huh. Yep. Then it was George Lucas's turn to take a spin. Tony Baxter recalled he showed up eating two chocolate donuts with a cup of orange juice. And I thought, uh oh, <laughs> when he got off, he had beads of sweat on his forehead and said that it was fine. He didn't want to go on it a second time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it passed the test if it scared the bejesus out of George. <laughs> Construction on the Indiana Jones attraction at Disneyland began in late 1993. The attraction show building was the largest ever built at Disneyland at the time and took up the Eeyore section of the parking lot, causing oh, the monorail to be shut down so the large S-curve could be added to go around the building. To make room for the newly discovered Temple of the Forbidden Eye, the rivers of the world were rerouted to the left, and some of the jungle's animal residents were relocated to new areas of the jungle. A larger version of Harper Goff's original Jungle Cruise loading building replaced the existing building. And the bizarre shops were reimagined to fit the new theme. The Jungle Cruise was also rethemed to be set in a specific time era, the mid-1930s, the same as the Indiana Jones films. Music and radio announcements in the Jungle Cruise queue helped identify the era. Six months before the Indiana Jones adventure opened, the attraction queue was open so guests could explore the temple's interior. This was the first time Disneyland had opened a queue with no attraction at the other end. This added a few Just a gift shop. Yeah, really. (laughs) This added a few jokes to the Jungle Cruise skipper's spiel as they cruised by. At approximately half a mile in length, the queue was the largest and most detailed of any Disneyland attraction. Did any of you go into the queue before the attraction actually opened? No. Yeah. No. I, I don't recall that at all. Wonder if now they the queue- wonder if they were handing out the AT and T cards at that point. I know they. I know they handed them out on opening day. I don't know if they handed them out before then. You think they would have. Right. Yeah. Because you actually would have had the time to right. decipher yeah. the hieroglyphics. Yeah. Right. Now, now the queue begins at an archaeological base camp near a troop transport with the Lost Delta Expedition logo. The truck was actually used in Raiders of the Lost Ark and was the truck under which Indiana Jones crawls. It was located in England and the golf balls used for the filming were still on the truck. Guests then walk through chilly, dripping caverns, collapsed hallways, grand rotundas, and simple altars all built to honor the ancient Mara. Curiously, each painting, carving, or image of Mara depicts him with his eyes closed or covered. With each successive image of Mara, eyes closed, guests might begin to imagine that the ancient legends they heard in the opening newsreel are true, that anyone who so much as glances into the eyes of Mara will be cursed to eternal torment and never leave the temple of the forbidden eye. One particular image of Mara directly inside of the crumbling temple facade is a daunting and gorgeous fresco of the god, eyes closed, holding a sacred object for each of his three gifts, an all-seeing eye, a vase of the waters of youth, and a chalice of gold and gems. 
Guests with a gift for deciphering or those who have the decoder card distributed during the ride's early seasons and recently introduced, and it's also available on the internet, can spend their time in the queue deciphering the ancient hieroglyphics or maraglyphs, spelling out the details, backstory, and legend carved into every wall and every surface. Now, many of those maraglyphs warn of booby traps and chambers. Some have been humorously triggered and temporarily disabled by Indiana Jones and his fellow archaeologists, whilst some are waiting for an unfortunate guest to accidentally trip them. (laughs) Other interactive elements within the queue involve a couple of ways to disturb archaeologists hard at work in their excavation of the temple. Did any of you ever take the time to decipher any of the maraglyphs? When we actually we did. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cuz we we it it that was before the days of fast pass so we had plenty of time mm-hmm. to um to decipher them. Wasn't the wasn't didn't they say, once upon a time say that that font was actually designed on an Apple computer? That was like a big thing at the time that they they designed the font on an Apple that sounds right to me. I think you're right. So, Sunny so Carol yeah. was cleaning out a drawer, and she actually and she found one of our, those cards. Yeah, I so have. I have it in my study here. <laughs> when I worked at the Disney store, I worked at the Disney stores during the time that um, that that attraction opened. So I actually have a cast member watch, and inside the lid of the box is the decipher code. Oh, that's cool. That's and then I have yeah. then I have one of the reissued ones when they did those a while back. So now on March 3rd, 1995, the first guests boarded the troop transports to explore the Temple of the Forbidden Eye. And of course, on the very first transport, a guest looked into the eyes of Oh Mara. man. <laughs> As oh, has happened. You had one job. Trip. <laughs> and that's happened on every troop transport since. Now, some of the temple's inner chambers include the Chamber of Destiny. And this is the first stop on the tour. Here, Mara peers into our souls to see which of the three gifts we truly desire. Unfortunately, though, one of the passengers in the transport inevitably gazes into Mara's eye, unleashing his fury. Then there's the Tunnel of Torment. The once pristine architecture starts to decay and crumble as the power of Mara lifts the vehicle from its path and carries it through the air. Everything in the tunnel seems to move with us as our transport strains against the evil force that propels it forward. There's the Gates of Doom. You had to look, didn't you? Dr. (laughs) Jones exclaims as he tries to hold back the evil forces at the gates, breaking the curse just long enough for our transport to drop back down to the temple floor, allowing us to pass. There's the Cavern of Bubbling Death, but the way out isn't so easy. Here we make our way through this massive subterranean chamber as we Enter the cavern, the 45-foot-tall decaying statue of Mara fires a beam at the vehicle, causing the ceiling to crumble and fall into the flaming gorge, sending us to escape through a side chamber. This is probably the most remarkable scene of any Disney attraction, Yeah, uh, in my opinion. Um, For the first few weeks 
After the attraction opened, the queue stretched from the switchback set up in Adventureland to New Orleans Square to Frontierland and into the hub. Hmm. These were the largest yeah, yeah. crowds at Disneyland since the opening of Splash Mountain in 1989. The Indiana Jones Adventure was the first of a new breed of attraction that would lead Disneyland into the next century. Mary Jo, you said you were there? Yeah, we we waited four hours in line. But wow. we, we went there specifically to ride Indiana Jones. We knew that the lines were long and we didn't care. And mm-hmm. so um, Nick and Kelly and I, oh, my gosh, 1995, um, they, they were in middle school. No, they were they were elementary school. I'm sorry, in those days. And yeah. we so went and we had a great time. Isn't it, yeah. it, it? I think this is one of the greatest Disney attractions ever yep. made. And probably yeah. and for the longest time, it was probably one of the last great attractions, you know, made. Well, I know I've said that I used to go to the official Disneyana conventions when Disney actually used to put them on themselves. You know, the very first, whatever, the very first iteration of, you know, what's now become D23. And um, that was the first one they ever held at Disneyland was for the 40th anniversary for the opening of Indiana Jones. And they threw us a private party in the park. Um, They had, like, tables of desserts and, and food lined all the way through um, Adventureland, and we could ride Indy as many times as we wanted. And that was one heck of a party. And no lines, so you could spend as much time in the queue as you wanted to decipher stuff and go through. And I can only imagine. It's awesome. When I remember us um, going from Adventureland to um, Main Street, to Frontierland and switching the switchbacks through Frontierland and back out to go into Adventureland to go in Indiana Jones. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Back in, I did. Back in the crazy days. Yeah, when we went. <laughs> Would you we do it again our... if they opened? If they opened another amazingly fabulous, hyped-up attraction? Would like you, would like you Guardi- Guardians the of the Galaxy. Queue? Yeah. I was just thinking it's a, that. <laughs> it's a different. It's a different time period yeah. now. When my kids were little. This was an adventure yeah. for us, you know. And, well, kind of, kind of like spending spending the night in California Adventure to be there on the the day of the fiftieth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, certainly looking at Star Wars coming in in the future, you know that. That's going to be. We're going to expect lounge, those yeah. kinds <laughs> of yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to expect that same thing. There will well, be people I, camping out for that one here. Yeah. And you can see that we kind of do that now right for the 60th anniversary we were there at five in the morning in line mm-hmm. and the park didn't open till eight so yeah yeah we we still do stuff like that not that we're <laughs> you know in, in disney fans so nuts or anything yeah. <laughs> yeah. well on march 4th will schreiner hosted the disneyland 40th anniversary television special titled celebrate 40 years of adventure and this included a look back at the opening day of disneyland and significant events in the park's history and with clips of george lucas fran drescher elliot gould <laughs> i know i lo- always love i i run who's the host again of- uh, Will Schreiner. He was a, Schreiner. a very popular comedian okay. at the time. Yeah. But I, I, I always have to go through the You're list. So of have to Google him. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, because it's just so much fun. So it in so they had George Lucas, of course, Fran Drescher, Elliot Gould, Tony Danza, who is in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ben Savage, Keenan Ivory Wayans, and they all shared their memories of Disneyland. And of course, no television special would be complete without Mickey and Minnie and Snow White and Dopey. There are some really good scenes in this showing the construction of the interior of the Indiana Jones adventure. And then there's a ride through, but it shows mostly Will Schreiner bouncing and wisecracking his way through the temple. Oh, Will but, Schreiner. Okay, I got him. Yeah. He's aged but, well. Yeah. But I think. <laughs> I think this is one of the best Disneyland television specials that ever aired because of the history aspect of it. And this yeah. is on YouTube, so you can check it out. Thanks, Michael. I remember I watching it. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Because, you know, when you, lived in the, when you lived in the Midwest, those kinds of television shows are what you crave for. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you don't have that context. That's what made the Disney stores so popular. Right. It's because that gave people a little bit of, you know, those things give people that touch that's of their made, vacation. That's what made Disney Quest so popular. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. bad example, sorry. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you're right, because there was no internet. So the, the only way we saw Disneyland was through these television specials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the 40th anniversary of Disneyland, uh, like I said, 40 Years of Adventures was the slogan, was centered around the opening of the Indiana Jones Adventure. Um, when guests arrived at the ticket booths, they could pose in front of a large photo location with two looming cobra statues, a carving of the Eye of Mara, and a large rope hanging down into the space from an opening in the ruins above. And the background of the photo op was a visual of the Temple of the Forbidden Eye itself. And of course, there was plenty of Temple of the Forbidden Eye merchandise, as well as generic Indiana Jones items licensed by Lucasfilm. There were t-shirts. I have my 40 Years of Adventure t-shirt still. Mickey dressed as Indiana Jones. Um, shot glasses, mugs, and of course, there was the Indiana Jones brown fedora. The park issued a limited special ticket, which they did several times for other milestone events, such as the final performance of the Main Street Electrical Parade and the opening of Mickey's Toontown. And this ticket was about a foot long and five inches wide. Wow. And press from all around the world was flown into Southern California. Celebrities were also invited to the event, including Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, George Lucas, Carrie Fisher, Wayne Gretzky, Dan Aykroyd, and many more. And they all arrived in classic automobiles, automobiles, and they paraded slowly down Main Street and around the hub before they were dropped off at a red carpet entrance to the lavish private party in Adventureland. And you can see scenes from the party in the 40th anniversary television special. And apparently brown fedoras were given out as party gifts because everybody's wearing them. Um, As part of the 40th anniversary celebration, a time castle with more than 60 items was sealed and lowered into a vault in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle, and it's not to be opened until July 17th, 2035 for Disneyland's 80th anniversary. Wow. And some some items awaiting to be rediscovered include a Mickey cast member name tag, a 1995 pay stub, probably it'll be the same amount, um, <laughs> a a laser disc player. I hope it has instructions. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know, those were new back then. <laughs> they were. They were cutting edge. And lots of 40th anniversary memorabilia. Now, no well, Michael, words- you said you were there on the anniversary, right? Uh, on the 40th? 
mm-hmm. or on the 60th? 40th. We were there right after it, just a few days after the 40th. They had the time capsule on display before mm-hmm. they buried it. And I, I remember. remember. Okay, that was really cool to see that too. Yeah, and it's beautiful. There's photos of it online. Oh, okay. And you can see it. Uh, you can see where it's buried also in front of the okay. castle. There's a marker for it as well. Um, now, a noteworthy event in the history of the company Walton Roy built took place on July 31st when the Walt Disney Company and Capital Cities ABC announced a $19 billion merger of the two companies. It was the then-struggling ABC network that invested in Walt's idea for a theme park. In exchange, Walt provided the network with television programming. On August 2nd, 1995, a group of around 40 of Disney's top executives met for a three-day brainstorming session in Aspen, Colorado to deal with the Anaheim problem. They broke up into five design teams, and each team had to develop its own concept for the second theme park. Some of the ideas included a trip along Route 66, sports-related themes, and a celebration of the natural world. At the end of the retreat, each design team pitched their ideas to Michael Eisner. Afterwards, Eisner said, you know what? California is a big idea. We can do everything we want to do under that umbrella. People are seeing that perfect idealized California, and we will be able to deliver it to them. And so was born Disneyland's second gate, Disney's California Adventure. (laughs) And finally, (sighs) Disney's Disney's America had finally found a home. Mm. Uh, As plans for the next era of Disneyland were unfolding, plans for the end of an era in Disneyland's Tomorrowland were underway. In August, the People Mover took its last guests on a tour around a world on the move. Imagineers no longer considered the attraction a prototype of a transportation system of the future as Walt had envisioned. The closure was also part of Michael Eisner and Paul Pressler's program to save money by shutting down attractions with a high expense and low capacity. Another step was taken towards the expansion plans for Disneyland. In December 1995, the Disney company purchased the 502-room Pan Pacific Hotel from the Tokyo Corporation for an estimated $36 million dollars. The hotel was built in 1984 for the Los Angeles Summer Olympics on 4.6 acres south of the Disneyland Hotel. Disney's first attempt to purchase the hotel in 1991 was unsuccessful when the two sides could not agree on a deal. The hotel was soon remodeled and renamed the Disneyland Pacific Hotel. Attendance in 1995 rose to an amazing 14.1 million guests, making Disneyland the most visited theme park in the world, thanks to the 40th anniversary and the Indiana Jones Adventure attraction. As I have mentioned in an earlier episode of my history segments, I talked about the reason Walt would not construct a Disneyland administration building or install air conditioning in the Disneyland offices because his philosophy for the park managers was, I want you out in the park watching what people are doing and finding out how you can make the place more enjoyable for them. 
Michael Eisner did not share Walt's philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> he fancied himself as a patron of cutting-edge architecture that would make a statement. Hmm. And he decided to finally give the Disneyland executives what they wanted. Eisner hired Frank O'Gary to design an office building for the property the Walt Disney Company had purchased from Global Van Lines. Gary designed a building with two different sides. Facing inward, the building's wave-like facade was painted a bright yellow. Gary said he wanted this side of the building to be joyful and to create a sense of movement. The side facing the Santa Ana Freeway was very different, with an 800-foot flat surface with deep-set windows. The facade is sheathed in quilted stainless steel panels dipped in chemicals to deoxidize the surface, which created a patina that changed from yellow to purple to green as you looked at it from different angles. So the Team Disney Anaheim building opened on February 15th, 1996, and could hold up to 1,250 cast members. There was a seven-level parking structure, which could hold 1,600 automobiles. Inside was a 200-seat auditorium and a 400-seat cafeteria. The building took seven years to design and construct at a cost of $35.6 million. An An unintended consequence of the Team Disney building was that it blocked the view of the Matterhorn from the freeway, thus ending the game many children would, would play as their parents drove to the park. Who would spot the Matterhorn first? Um, We played that game. Yeah. Oh, me too. Mm -hmm. And with our own children. Um, Frank Gehry would go on to design the Walt Disney Concert Hall. So do you think this was really great cutting edge um, architecture? (laughs) Fits in well with the park? (laughs) You know what they called that building? They didn't necessarily call it Team Disney. They called it the Banana Building. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of the banana-like shape and color. But I, I still like the treatment of the metal panels that's on the freeway side. It, it, I always wondered how they got it to be that color. So that that's cool. I didn't know about the dipping in the, the dipping them in chemicals to get that surface area. So it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it just doesn't, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't fit to me. And it bo- always bothered me when you could see it, like from Big Thunder Mountain Railway, this yellow and all that. So, I don't know. I never cared I for it. <laughs> I'm never looking that far out when you when I ride Big Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> She's got her eyes closed. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I'm always looking for the goat, you know, the mm. goat with the dynamite. You know, you used to look for things like the guy in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Which they have the guy in the bathtub in Florida, right? Yeah. Now, now when the Walt Dis- when the Walt Disney Company unveiled their expanded resort plans in 1991, sitting on the site of the Grand Hotel was a seven-story parking structure. Despite the fact that Disney did not own the property, as a result, the hotel's advanced bookings from tour groups and conventions plummeted because it was believed the hotel would be closing. The hotel. <laughs> <laughs> the hotel eventually went bankrupt, and the Walt Disney Company acquired the mortgage for $8 million and began foreclosure proceedings in 1995. 
However, a judge allowed the owners to put the hotel up for auction, and Disney won with a bid of $13.3 million and took possession on April 26, 1996. Disney immediately gutted the hotel and left it sitting vacant for two years. Although Michael Eisner wed Imagineering and the Walt Disney Company now prided themselves on being on the cutting edge of technology, there was an emerging technology they were completely unprepared for, the Internet. And with it, the growing number of guests who were watching the company's every move (laughs) and posting their observations and opinions online. And they did not like what they were seeing. Many Disney fans and Disneyland guests were posting their criticism of the Walt Disney Company, believing their corporate greed was overshadowing the legacy of Walt Disney. Internet fan sites began to spring up and were vocal in their criticism of Disneyland's Paul Pressler and blaming him for the apparent deterioration of Walt Disney's high standards of cleanliness and guest service. However, Pressler was on the corporate fast track due to his support of the Disneyland expansion plan and talent for completing projects below the projected cost. So when did you all start getting on the Internet and sort of seeing all this play out? I I didn't get on to the late 90s. I Mm -hmm. wasn't one of the Vanguard Internet people. What about the chat room? What about you guys? I know for me it was like right around 96, 97. Yeah, I think no. that's even... No, I take me. that back. It was a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think you got on before I did, Nancy. Yeah. yeah. No, I want to for- say it was in the early 90s. It was yeah. definitely in the early 90s. Yeah, it was the early 90s for me as well. Yeah, so, um, yeah, because we got our first home computer. Because I was a teacher, uh-huh. we got our first home computer pretty early on mm-hmm. when they first came out. So, um, yeah, because I, yeah. I was traveling for work and, you know, modeming in my reports and, you know, modeming into my, my you know, systems in 98 because I traveled like Tony does now. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so, well, we'll see the Internet come back into play. In a, in a little bit. Now, in 1996, the guests zooming through the galaxy of Space Mountain enjoyed the addition of an electrifying soundtrack. In April, Tomorrowland's carousel of theater walls were demolished for the first phase of construction of what would be Innoventions. And in mm-hmm. May, one of the most unique shops in Disneyland, New Orleans Square one-of-a-kind shop, closed. Big Thunder Ranch closed in early 1996 to be replaced by the Hunchback of Notre Dame Festival of Fools, which was a spectacular live outdoor stage musical. The Festival of Fools debuted on June 21st, the same day the animated film opened in theaters. The Big Thunder Ranch barbecue was transformed into the Festival of Foods with pretty much (laughs) I know with pretty much the same menu as before. The Disney villain shop in Fantasyland was transformed into Quasimodo's attic and would quickly be renamed the Sanctuary of Quasimodo, and a hunchback vignette featuring Quasimodo was placed in the store windows. 
The window had previously showcased various Disney villains, such as Ursula, the Wicked Witch, and the Evil Queen from Snow White. On August 16, 1997, it would be replaced by Night Shop. In 1997, a hunchback of Notre Dame Parade, or really a cavalcade, made its debut. During a show stop, Quasimodo was crowned the King of Fools. At the end of the parade, there was an announcement inviting guests to come join us later today at the Festival Arena, where we celebrate the triumphs of Quasimodo and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Did you ever see the um, Hunchback of Notre Dame Festival of Fools? Yes. Yeah, we... No, really I always wanted to. I saw the the version in Florida numerous times, mm-hmm. but never got to see. I always read about it and wondered how they did it. You know, with the it, it now it rotated, right? Uh-uh. No, no, or it was in the a theater it was in, in the, the round. round I mean. Yeah, 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 theater in the round, so you could see different angles. Like, what was the best angle? I always sat right in front. So yeah, um, so did we. Yeah, I thought it. I I know I thought it was magnificent. It was so well done. I really enjoyed it. So I don't know. What did you all think? We loved it. Mm-hmm. We yeah. We yeah. all. That's one of Kelly's favorite movies. So we just we yeah. all really enjoyed it. it Disneyland's a, had some really good shows over the it was years. Amazing, amazing how long that light grid stayed in place, though. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because you could that, you could see the remnants of it until it closed almost. Yeah, yeah, and the, um, they 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 didn't do a very good job redressing the whole uh, you know Big Thunder Ranch petting zoo, but because uh, it's really tough to change a log cabin to look yeah. like you know a French right you know, a little French house <laughs> in, from the you know seventeen hundreds or sixteen hundreds. But yeah. anyway, but it, it was a good show. Um, on July 12, 1996, Disneyland executives met with Anaheim City officials to unveil the plans for the Disneyland Resort expansion. The plans would be announced to the public on the park's anniversary a few days later. As announced, the Disneyland, the new Disneyland Resort would include the 55-acre Disney's California Adventure theme park, the 750-room Disney's Grand Californian Hotel that would face into the new theme park, and a 200,000-square-foot Disneyland Center shopping and entertainment district. The goal of this expansion was to turn Disneyland into a multi-day tourist resort similar to Walt Disney World. Disneyland executives are becoming increasingly concerned that the constant regional discounting and annual passes was beginning to turn Disneyland into a regional theme park. <laughs> rather than, <laughs> I know. Ra- rather than a world-class destination. Isn't that, isn't that funny to look back on that now? On October 8th, the Anaheim City Council approved the expansion plans with several tax concessions and funds for infrastructure improvements to support the project. The Walt Disney Company agreed to open a new park by June 30th, 2001 that would be of Disney quality comparable to other resorts. And I'll talk more about Disney's California Adventure in a separate episode since this 60 Years of Disneyland series is focused on Disneyland Park. Now, October 15, 1977, it was announced as the day Main Street Electrical Parade would glow away forever. 
A modest send-off was planned, and a few commemorative souvenirs were released, which included farewell season buttons, one lit up. Collector's cards, a farewell season DVD, um, or I think it was really a video cassette, because we have mm-hmm. that still. Mm-hmm. I have um, too. Despite Disneyland's summer season ending on September 2nd, the crowds remained as guests wanted to see the final runs of their beloved parade. The demand for souvenirs grew and crowds overwhelmed the park's capacity and guests were turned away. Paul Pressler could do little except to announce an encore performance and add more parade dates to accommodate the emotional guests wanting to see the parade for a final time. Finally, November 25th, just three days before Thanksgiving, was the date announced as the final, final night for the Blue (laughs) Fairy to lead the parade through Disneyland. To mark the occasion, a special promotion had been created. At the end of the parade, the floats were to be dismantled and the light bulbs collected <laughs> and sold to fans. You know, they just went to Kmart and bought light string lights. and. I can tell you the story behind it. Um, with proceeds going to various children's charities, what they did, and this is terrible, they actually... They had a float because the floats were dismantled fairly quickly. They had a float where they would put the lights on. I think it was one of the little bugs or something. They would switch it on and then immediately switch it off and then take out all the little lights and then package them up in a special commemorative box. And then they would put all lights in it again, turn them on and then turn it off <laughs> and take them on. And that isn't, I don't know. It's kind of like my S. Running the flag up the capital of the capital and taking it back right back down again to sell it as, yeah for, to give it away as a but but my estimation of Disney it really really went down when mm-hmm. I heard that story years later I heard so I, should, I guess but I should just sell it on eBay yeah but the proceeds did go to children's charities and they and they Disney donated quite a lot of money to them um because of the huge interest in the final run of the main street electrical parade the evening was carried live on local on a local cable television ocn the orange county news channel um the news channel broadcast live for three hours and showed both runs of the parade that night along with commentary from disneyland ambassador chris allen and an interview with imagineer marty scalar However, this would not be the last time the Baroque hoedown <laughs> would echo down Main Street, USA. Um, guest attendance set new records for Disneyland in 1996 to over 15 million guests. Hotel bookings in the Anaheim Resort area were up 10% over the previous year. 1997 brought a lot of changes to Disneyland. On January 5th, the Rocket Jets attraction on top of the People Mover loading platform spun its guests for the last time and was dismantled. New trams transported guests from the parking lot to the main gate. The Carnation Ice Cream Parlor closed and would be replaced by the Blue Ribbon Bakery. The Gibson Girl Ice Cream Parlor would open on March 21st, named after the popular turn-of-the-century illustrator Charles Dana Gibson. The Carnation Cafe was moved to West Center Street and reopened as a European bistro-style cafe with outdoor seating. For its 30th anniversary... 
the much superior Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> Disneyland <laughs> went through a refurbishment that resulted in several improvements and controversial changes. The most noticeable change when the attraction reopened on March 7th was the scene in which the pirates chased the women. Rather than, cha- uh, r- rather than chasing the women out of lust... The pirates are now chasing the women out of gluttony, since the women now carried platters of food. One woman with a rolling pin was chasing a pirate who had stolen her baked goods. Interestingly, the buy a bride auction scene was not changed. (laughs) (laughs) We want the redhead. Yes, I know. Isn't it funny to say, and you know, as we know, it went through more changes to make it less offensive that scene has never changed though the buy a bride scene i remember how ridiculous we (laughs) thought when that happened too when they Mm -hmm. made these changes yep everyone did that that's Mm -hmm. what was funny is that you know were was this due to guest demand i have no idea you know it was a big you got to be kidding me yeah now Walt Disney was very proud of his busy rivers of America and would enjoy spending time sitting along the shore, watching the river traffic with his two boats, the Mark Twain and the Columbia sailing by, the Tom Sawyer Sawyer rafts um, going to you know, guests paddling by on the canoes, and the keelboats zigzagging around the river. On May 17, 1997, the Gully Wumper keelboat loaded with 49 guests, its normal maximum capacity is 32, Oops. began rocking from side to side during a routine trip around Tom Sawyer Island. The Gully Wumper tipped over, dunking a boatload of guests into the rivers of America. Several guests were treated for minor injuries at St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, and following the accident, the gully wumper was removed from the river for inspection. This preventable accident would lead to the permanent closure of the attraction. Keelboats was my favorite way to go around um, rivers of America. I loved it. They had great spiel, the keelboat um, yes. captains. It was so. such a classic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad. I always wish they could come up with a way to, you know, they could easily redesign keelboats that weren't top-heavy and yeah. and start that up again. But, you know, it's a slow loader so and low capacity. Um, now, the successor to the Main Street Electrical Parade was announced for the summer of 1997. After a large media blitz in an attempt to get visitors excited about a show they've never seen, Light Magic opened in May at Disneyland. The Disneyland executives were so confident Light Magic would be so popular, they decided to stage a special premiere event just for Disneyland's annual pass holders. This hard-ticket event was scheduled for May 13th, a full 10 days ahead of Light Magic's official Disneyland debut. The party would be held after park hours at $25 a person. (laughs) (laughs) I know, again. A bargain. Now now it'd be $125 a person. Of of course, to make the annual pass holders light magic premiere party experience more memorable, Disneyland's special events office decided to offer some exclusive merchandise to partygoers, items available only at the May 13th event. 
Disneyland's merchandise office contacted Disney artist Charles Boyer and hired him to create a light magic lithograph. They then arranged for Charles to be at the park on May 13th, where he'd sign any light magic lithographs purchased during the premiere party. The New Century Timepieces shop created a limited edition watch that could only be purchased by people who attended the annual pass holders event. Mugs, t-shirts, and buttons with the May 13th party date were created and ready to be sold to annual pass holder ticket holders. And this was this was not as common in those days uh, at Disneyland as it is now. So this was this was huge for them. Then the Disneyland Entertainment Office asked to push the debut date of Light Magic from <laughs> May 23rd to the middle of June because they wouldn't be ready for a May debut. You can imagine the reaction from Disney executives. Public relations said the date couldn't be moved because the national ad campaign publicized May 23rd as the debut. The special events office said the date can't be moved because they would have to cancel the annual passholder premiere party and refund their money. But Disneyland's merchandise office was the most vocal, with the merchandise for the annual Passholder premiere party dated May 13, 1997, and merchandise dated May 23, 1997 for the official public debut, they were unwilling to absorb the loss. As a result, when Light Magic debuted for annual Passholders on May 13, only three of the four rolling stages were ready. 15% of the special effects still had to be installed, and the cast had time for only one dress rehearsal, which was the night before, on May 12th, before the annual Passholder premiere. Needless to say, <laughs> the premiere did not go well, as technical problems came up with aligning the floats with the projectors, various cues were missed, sound equipment failed, and the fiber optic lighting was not yet fully functional. To make it worse, before the party began, Disneyland president Paul Pressler announced to the passholder crowd that the show was to be a dress rehearsal and not the show in its finished form. The angry response to all this from the annual pass holders resulted in long lines at City Hall as they demanded refunds because they felt they had been led to believe they were to see the finished product and not to be used as a test audience to see the bugs worked out. Then they took to the Internet. Reports... <laughs> <laughs> Reports quickly spread that light magic was not worth seeing. Many felt that the pixies came off a bit scary with their fake noses, cheeks, and ears. Light magic eventually earned the nickname Light Tragic. <laughs> the backstory of the parade was that after dark, when it was time for the Disney characters to say goodnight, Disneyland would transform into a dreamlike fairy world filled with pixie dust, Disney characters in their pajamas, nightshirts, and nightgowns with pixies, lots of them. To comply with Michael Eisner's desire to capitalize on the popularity of river dance, Celtic style dance and music was the choreography and soundtrack including renditions of Topsy-Turvy from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Step in Time from Mary Poppins, Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid, and in what seemed the unkindest act of all, 
the Baroque Hoedown, the theme from the Main Street Electrical Parade. Add insult to injury. Yes. Light Magic was a streetacular with four large floats moving into two performance zones, one at the Small World Mall, the other on Main Street, USA. After reaching the performance zones, the floats would stop and pixie characters, who were the focus of the show, would awaken to perform Irish step dancing routines for the guests. They would be joined by Disney characters and guests. During the performance, screens would raise up, upon which images were projected from equipment hidden in the surrounding buildings. As part of the grand finale, the Pixies would use their magic to throw pixie dust and then confetti would fall from the sky and the buildings light up with a shower of twinkling lights provided by fiber optics embedded in the facades. Light Magic's Celtic-influenced soundtrack included Be Our Dream, um, which was the Light Magic theme, Little April Shower from Bambi, Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast, Topsy Turvy from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Step in Time from Mary Poppins, When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes from Cinderella, Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, um, from Beauty and the Beast and Baroque Hoedown from the Main Street Electrical Parade. And as you said, Mary Jo, the use of Baroque Hoedown in Light Magic hit a nerve with guests who were still unhappy with the loss of the Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah. Hearing the Baroque Hoedown incorporated into Light Magic, regardless of the positive intentions that it be a loving acknowledgement of the legacy of the Main Street Electrical Parade, it felt like a slap in the face. Each night, as that portion of the soundtrack played, guests cheered <laughs> and then jeered when the music returned to Light Magic's theme song, <laughs> Dream Our Dream. Um, Disneyland annual pass holders hated light magic. Other guests were unimpressed, and they expressed their dissatisfaction on the Internet. With the negative word of mouth and Internet discussions, Disney never had a chance to improve the parade. Light magic ran from late May to September 1997, not even a full four months. (laughs) (laughs) Though Disney officially stated at the time that the show would return in the year 2000. The $40 million streetacular never saw the light of day again. So, and, and did, and then did any, now Mary Jo, you said your children saw it, right? My children saw it and they were very unimpressed. Mm -hmm. I remember even as young as they were, I never had the chance. I was going to see it and it, it was gone. Yeah. yeah. And, but I remember the, the word on the street, people just absolutely hated it. Nobody, I never heard any one person say they liked it. I'm guessing I, I saw, a, but I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend who came down from Oakland to see it. And he said, you know, on opening night. And he said that as they were walking out, there were lines going into city hall of people complaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Just, it's interesting how times change now. Paint the night uses broke ho down, and we're not. I mean, it's it's a celebration it, of yeah. Yeah, but it's well, a good parade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
for one thing, it's a good parade. And another thing, we haven't had the Main Street Electrical Parade in so many years. Right. right. That the it's homage, not fresh. I, when, yeah. Right. When, when yeah. we saw it, Kelly cried because she heard the Electrical Parade because it evoked so many emotions. Yeah. But I think that Light Magic was kind of a shock. It was when it was really popular that Irish dancing, I forget the, the, oh, yeah. that Mike, Michael Flatley. Um, Flatley. He was so popular, and I think Disney wanted to capitalize on that, and it fell so flat. Um, mm-hmm. People just, they, yep. like I, like Michael said, they hated it. Mm-hmm. Now, despite the show's failure and short-lived run, much of the infrastructure built for Light Magic, especially in the Small World Mall area, is still used for Disneyland's parades today. And these infrastructure improvements include painted asphalt along the parade route, and it was replaced with concrete to accommodate the large, heavy show platforms. The plaza area in front of It's a Small World was widened and terraced to allow more guests a better view of the parade route, similar to the way some areas of New Orleans Square were terraced for Fantasmic. A walkway was added parallel to the parade route between Storybookland Canal Boats and It's a Small World in order to allow guests to move in and out of It's a Small World area during parades. And this was actually added in response to crowded conditions for guests during the final months of the Main Street Electrical Parades run. And lighting lighting towers were constructed for light magic on the small world mall and atop the main street usa buildings and this allowed disneyland to run the same parade in the afternoon and in the evening rather than running separate afternoon and evening parades as was done for several years of the main street electrical parades run now three towers constructed on the small world mall for sound and lighting used in light magic are still standing Two currently serve no explicit purpose but their exterior facades are still maintained one was returned to service as a projection tower for disneyland forever and if you feel as if you missed out on seeing this classic <laughs> disneyland parade video of the parade is available on youtube along with a making of light magic video that's a bit sad to watch today since the designers <laughs> musicians choreography chore- and choreographers really believe they were creating a worthy successor to the main street electrical parade were any of the floats recycled that I don't know. Or we would recognize um, them. I don't. We wouldn't recognize them. Yeah. This was also the, the the show stops was was one of the other things I remember people hated because if you weren't in the right place uh-huh. at the right time, you didn't see the parade, and that was something Disney did for a while, and um and and luckily they've abandoned it now, but uh, that so that was one of the other criticisms of of Light Magic. But like we said, I think that has to has depending on the parade because they had show stops for Parade of Dreams. No, um, that, I'm sorry. Yes, Lion the, and Lion Li- King, the Lion, Lion King festival, and of Lion was, King, yeah. and that's that's a that ended up being a crowd favorite, mm-hmm. right? But they had things going on in between the floats. Not and they didn't quite have as much going on in between the floats of Light Magic. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. So. But but you're right. The Lion King parade was much, much better. But there was a parade that get, did give Disneyland a new hero at the same time. The Daytime Hercules Victory mm-hmm. Parade or the Zero to Loved. Hero Parade. 
based Love. on the animated film Hercules. It debuted on June 27th, and with its satire and Hellenistic kitsch and the lack of technical wizardry, it was like the antithesis of light magic, and it was a huge hit for the summer season. Yeah. And that that was a terrific parade. It was a little parade, but it was terrific. Nat, you can watch on YouTube as well. Um, for the it was second, a fun parade. It was. It was. And it's a fun film. Oh, and, yeah. Um, for the second time, It's a Small World was temporarily closed to receive a holiday transformation. It reopened on November 27th as the It's a Small World holiday, a celebration of Christmas cheer around the world. The attraction's facade was decorated with more than 50,000 multicolored lights. The interior was redressed as a winter wonderland with holiday decorations to reflect the style and traditions of each country, and the dolls were adorned with new costumes. Paul Pressler said, We're v- We've very carefully gone through and depicted the holidays as they're celebrated around the world. <laughs> this, ov- this overlay was not a Walt Disney Imagineering project. Rather, it was produced by Steve Davison of the Disneyland Entertainment Division. Ah. Yeah, and this has now become a magnificent holiday tradition at every Small World attraction around the world, with the exception of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. And I love this overlay. My favorite too. Small World. So it's just beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Who's your favorite? Which which are your favorite modified costumes? Um, you know how they have everybody kind of changed up, especially in the Heaven Room, as I, Teresa I, likes I to call just, it. I was just <laughs> going to say, I think I like the Heaven Room. Yeah, my favorite is the Santa Lucia. They used a really great set of fabrics on on the little Santa Lucia, where they take the, the little um, Dutch girl and change her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just so well done. And now, park attendance dipped to 14.25 million guests in 1997. Now, with over 50,000 guests visiting Disneyland on many days throughout the year, Walt believed Disneyland was more of a city than merely a theme park. So Walt petitioned the United States Postal Service to establish an, off- an official post office in the park which they refused. He also (laughs) wanted Caltrans to erect a large green sign for Disneyland on the freeway. Caltrans finally granted Walt's wish in 1998, when Caltrans widened the Santa Ana freeway and put up signs for Disneyland. The Anaheim City Council also renamed two streets with the goal of helping guests find their way to the resort parking lots. Friedman Way was renamed Disney Way. To their philanthropic foundation, the Friedman family had given the city nearly $500,000 over the past few years and was vehemently opposed to this name change. Leo Friedman, for whom the street had been named, had owned the Grand Hotel, Melody Land, and the Celebrity Theater. In 1999, West Street was renamed Disneyland Drive. Mm -hmm. On January 22, 1998, after close to a decade of planning and redirection, construction began on Disney's California Adventure. So after 42 years, the Disneyland parking lot closed on January 21st. On January 23rd, the Orange County Register published an article, Say Goodbye to the Old Parking Lot, as work begins in earnest on the new California Adventure at Disneyland. Yesterday, it was a parking lot. 
Today, it's Hollywood, Yosemite, San Francisco, and Paradise <laughs> Beach. Disney's California Adventure began construction Thursday as people bid adieu to the familiar Disneyland parking lot that has served as entrance to the park for 42 years. We're standing in Hollywood right now, said construction manager Alan Rose, pointing to pavement that still looked remarkably like the parking lot it was two days ago. (laughs) But there were already signs of things to come. A discarded Bambi sign lay on the ground, torn from its pole. Now, over at Disneyland, a question had been making the rounds to Team Disney Building and Walt Disney Imagineering. What to do with the submarine attraction? The low-capacity attraction was expensive to maintain and operate, but it was one of Walt's favorite attractions. Marty Sklar called the submarines unique in all the world. WDI was confident a new show using the latest technologies and sound and projection effects, along with the addition of dynamic seats, could rejuvenate the submarines into a thrilling attraction. Marty Sklar believed the capacity issue could be overcome. The submarines were decommissioned on September 7, 1998, with a large ceremony that included officers from the U.S. Navy. Tony Baxter remembered that as one of the saddest days of his life and vowed that hell or high water, I would get those submarines back in operation. However, the creative dark days had descended upon the Walt Disney Company that would trickle down to the theme parks. Attendance at the U.S. parks began declining and Euro Disneyland Paris was not meeting financial expectations and strained the financial assets of the company. Then on April 3rd, 1994, Frank Wells was killed in a helicopter accident, which left Michael Eisner devastated. Eisner seemed to never recover emotionally and psychologically from Wells' death. Michael Eisner then had heart bypass surgery. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of Walt Disney Studios and the third member of the Eisner-Wells team, left the company after he did not receive a promotion to replace Wells. All of these events initiated many internal changes for the company and for Imagineering. Several executives left the company, including Mickey Steinberg, the COO of Imagineering, which was a blow for Imagineering since Steinberg had always fought for a place at the corporate table and understood the creative process. Imagineering had always reported to the president of the studios, but Katzenberg was gone, and Eisner was instructed by his physicians to reduce his stress level. So he turned Imagineering over to the president of Parks and Resorts, who is now Paul Pressler. Imagineering and Parks and Resorts are two very different divisions that run very differently. In parks and resorts, success is measured by economic performance. In contrast, studio executives are risk takers and know there is risk associated with the creative process in designing new films and new ideas. Pressler's strategy for the parks was to close anything that had a high operating cost, and he halted the development on several projects Imagineering was working on. Paul Pressler wanted safe and inexpensive projects for Disneyland. From 1995 to 1999, Pressler made dramatic cuts to operating budgets. 
Guests saw a decline in the cleanliness and maintenance of the park and were vocal on the Disney Internet fan sites and at Disneyland City Hall. In this Pressler era of cost-cutting, Imagineering turned their attention to Tomorrowland. Despite the addition of Captain EO and Star Tours of the 1980s, the future was running a little late again. <laughs> Tony Baxter was given the task of reimagining a third generation of Tomorrowland. The budget for this new Tomorrowland was $100 million, significantly smaller than the original budget for the Tomorrowland 2055 concept, which would have included the creation of a new e-ticket attraction to replace the Wedway People Mover. This was not much more than the amount spent for the Indiana Jones adventure. So the plans for Tomorrowland 2055, which would have included unique landscaping, strobing fiber optic approach lights set in concrete for extraterrestrial landing craft, mood sensing urinals, <laughs> and I, I, I don't quite get those, and the alien encounter attraction would have to be shelved unless ambitious plans developed. As a result, the design team decided to reuse the existing structures as much as possible and to focus on content and storytelling. Tony Baxter and his team's approach was to redefine Tomorrowland. Rather than a realm that predicted the future, it would be a realm depicting what we would like the future to be. Michael Eisner reportedly suggested, The future is Montana! Everybody wants to live in the forest away from the urban city, but still have the benefits of technology. Eisner believed this was a calmer, reassuring future based in hopes and dreams and romance rather than a portrayal of future reality. So instead of looking forward, the design team looked backward to the visionaries of the past, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Leonardo da Vinci. The optimistic white color palette of Tomorrowland would make way for the Disneyland Paris color palette, a Jules Verne-inspired warm bronze and gold design. New Tomorrowland was designed to include the best assets from the old era of Tomorrowland, bring in some popular Epcot attractions along with a few original attractions. Star Tours and Space Mountain remained. The America Sings and Carousel of Progress building, vacant for a decade, would be transformed into a massive exposition, Innoventions. The latest technology would be showcased in the rotating venue. Utopia, which had separate attractions in both Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, closed in 1999, shortly after New Tomorrowland's opening, for a more expansive and combined version that carried over the gold and bronze Tomorrowland color palette. A renovated monorail station accompanied the nearby Utopia. The centerpiece of New Tomorrowland was in the center of the land, the Observatron, towering in the spot previously occupied by the rocket jets. It would come to life every 15 minutes to spin and play cheery music. According to its backstory, it was sending messages into deep space looking for intelligent life. That's why it must have been pointing up rather than down. Um, <laughs> rock Rocket Rods, a three-minute zippy experience on the formal <laughs> People Mover track, was one of the park's most costly at $25 million and the shortest lived of e-ticket attractions. Guests would sometimes wait hours in the air-conditioned queue of what was once the America the Beautiful Circle Vision 3D Theater. 
On the walls are displayed giant blueprints of the flying saucers and the submarines. Footage from old futuristic Disney films and specials filled the screens, accompanied by designs and actual ride vehicles of extinct Tomorrowland attractions, including a Mark III monorail, a pair of Wedway People Mover cars, and two original rocket jets. The ride vehicles were designed to look incomplete, suggesting to guests that they were trying out an experimental high-speed transportation um, vehicle. This truly was a prototype vehicle based on technology still under development from Epcot's test track, which was having its own technology problems. The vehicles had an unusual one 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 two seating arrangement. Um, Rocket Rods was the fastest and longest distance attraction at Disneyland, achieving speeds of up to 35 miles per hour. Whilst the People Mover took 16 minutes to make its journey around its track, Rocket Rods took only three minutes. Eisner was very pleased with Rocket Rods and said, As a type A impatient person, I was happy to participate in speeding up the People Mover. There that, that was, was such a, a weird cue because you like went underground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember get, that. That was so weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to get your thoughts on on rocket rods in a moment because I did not have the pleasure of riding it. Um, there we were there a week before it opened, and we got there a week after it closed. Um, there was a problem though. The 30-year-old people mover track had only been equipped to handle slow-moving vehicles. The Rocket Rods was a high-speed vehicle, and the Disney Imagineers had to contend with the limits of the new Rocket Rods machinery and the old people mover track. Originally, General Motors was the sponsor and fund both Disneyland's Rocket Rods and Epcot's Test Track. But as Test Track encountered more and more problems and delays, GM pulled the funding from Rocket Rods, which reduced the funding by two-thirds. And compromises had to be made to get the half-designed Rocket Rods attraction completed and functioning One of the compromises was to drop the redesign of the people mover track so it would be banked like test track. This meant the rocket rod vehicles had to slow down to go around the unbanked curves. The continual acceleration and deacceleration caused the vehicle motors to overheat. This and software glitches caused frequent breakdowns. The team responsible for the repairs referred to various vehicles like Pintos, Mercedes, Rolls Royces, (laughs) and Humvees that were noted for their reliability. The attraction was shut down in July for repairs and reopened in October. It still didn't work and was shut down for another month in another attempt to repair the attraction. So you've written, you wrote on it. So what was it like? It was like, Riding in a fast convertible. Mm-hmm. So, personally for me, it really wasn't a thrill. But for my children, um, they loved it. Especially at nighttime. They loved it. And I think that's the first attraction where we were able to um, use the single rider line. And so my kids felt very grown up going on it. And yes, again, we stood in line for two hours. We were one of those We were yeah, one I, of those I think families. We wait, I think we did that too. Yeah. I remember and, the, and, the whole queue. Right. And and the queue was kind of cool. The cool, the queue when you went into where the circle vision used to be, 
um, yep. as I have as I wave my hand in the air so I could point it out. Um, it Two had, um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. Um, it had uh, like diagrams of the of the rocket rods. Uh-huh. I want to say people mover, but I think it was the rocket rods that were in yeah. there, and, yeah. and it kind of was um, very schematic and looked really cool. But what what would happen is you would go on the you know how we had that long stretch where you could still see the people mover track. And it would go really fast there, and then it would slow down for the curves. So mm-hmm. it wasn't really a uh, exciting a fast, ride. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't for me. For my kid, like I said, for my kids, it was, um, especially if they sat in the front. But it was just like riding a convertible with the with the top down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How I felt. Yeah. So I remember well, I it was noisy the- when I yeah, heard the it, test. Yeah, it made the. It made the whir noise. One of the things I liked is when you went into what's now the Buzz Lightyear entrance, um, that rotunda had was sh- showed the 1950s um, Cars of the Future. Uh-huh. I remember it had all the videos up there. And then as you progress through, you got the history of transport. But I remember you, we had to go through some really weird up and downs in order to get there because they had to take you... Okay, it, under, under Tomorrowland, yeah. Yeah, under Tomorrowland and then up again. It was very... And then, was it stairs going back up? It was It was so not ADA compliant. Yeah, no, there oh, were no. stairs going down. <laughs> I remember that. that. Well, they had two different... I thought they had... Because you, you had to go I back up? I thought they had a ramp somewhere. Yeah. I remember going in where the, where the um, original rocket rods used to be. And I remember going into the queue over there and then going underneath and then coming back up where the circle vision. Yeah. No, it was the other way no, around. No, no, no. You start, you start the where, the entrance, where the entrance to Buzz is now. Yeah, and then you yeah. have to go through the whole thing and then underneath Tomorrowland and then up to where the where the Orbitron is now. Yeah. Or not the Orbitron, mm-hmm. but the, the what would you call it? The, the satellite dishes. Oh yeah. yeah, Observatron. Observatron. Where the, the old people move or load. Yeah, so right. Mm-hmm. The girls used to love that thing when they were little. When yeah, it, when it worked. Its, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, when yeah. it worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, on September twenty eighth, two thousand, Rocket Rods closed with a sign um, displayed announcing it would reopen in spring two thousand and one. But Rocket Rods had zoomed into Disneyland history. Disneyland president Cynthia Harris candidly stated. The high-speed attraction was never able to perform to its design show standards. The mm. problem was a budget-conscious decision to run the high-speed rods on the People Movers' unbanked track. So, in other words, Rocket Rods was too expensive to operate, and the Walt Disney Company would not spend the money to correct the problem so the attraction could operate properly. Now, imported from Walt Disney World, the 4D Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, based on the 1989 film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, was installed to replace Captain EO. The theater floor had been placed on a gimbal, allowing it to move along with the action in the film. Another Florida import was Interventions in the Carousel Building. The intent was to invite promising new companies um, to exhibit their products and cutting-edge technology, but Disney settled for firms who paid to showcase their marketing (laughs) messages. 
A new splash area called Cosmic Waves was enjoyed by children of all ages for a short time. The water area was a big hit, but guests would visit Honey, I Shrunk the Audience after playing in the water, and the seats in the theater were beginning to show some damage. So the water area was removed and replaced with planters. American Space Experience was located next to Rocket Rods and celebrated 40 years of NASA. This museum-style attraction remained through 2003 until Buzz Lightyear blasted NASA out of the way to make room for Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters. I love that exhibit. Mm-hmm. It was a very stuff. good exhibit. Remember the aerogel that they used to have? They used mm-hmm. to have, uh, it, it was called aerogel, and it was this really light cloud type material that they used to gather space dust. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Yeah, and, and I think, didn't they have like examples of the foods? They sold the foods mm-hmm. and all that. They, they're like that weird, crunchy oh, ice right. cream stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Red Rocket's pizza port replaced the Mission to Mars attraction. Alien Encounter was originally to have been placed here, but the space was deemed to be too small for the attraction um, it would goodness. later land yeah, it would later land at the magic kingdom's tomorrowland at walt disney world um, yeah because then we would have stitch and mm-hmm. encounter um, in another questionable change the astro orbiter dumbo-esque spinning attraction similar to the rocket jets was removed from the top of the people mover station and placed at the entrance of tomorrowland at the same distance from the hub as sleeping beauty castle the 64 foot tall brass and gold moving astronomical model of planets and constellations was designed to be a striking new landmark and was an exact duplicate of the orbitron at disneyland paris and surrounded by rockwork, which Tony Baxter said was meant to be a mini berm. On May 22, 1998, Paul Pressler rededicated the new Tomorrowland. The opening ceremony for the new Tomorrowland included a squadron of real NASA astronauts and an appearance by racing star Mario Andretti testing the attraction's new rocket rods attraction. <laughs> I, and I'm sure Tony Danza was there. I'm <laughs> In the months after the rededication, guests expressed their disappointment with new Tomorrowland. First, rocket rods closed for repairs. Then the interactive fountain closed. The disappointment with interventions combined with the closure of the Skyway and the submarines led to the assessment that new Tomorrowland was unsuccessful. What guests did seem to like about the land was the landscaping of edible food including cabbages, citrus, spices, fruit, and broccoli. According to Imagineer Bruce Gordon, this was designed to send a subtle, optimistic, ecological message. We're going to be okay. The world will be fine. There will be enough food for everyone. Also, the second arrival of the Moonliner at Tomorrowland was a welcome addition next to the Innoventions building. The original Moonliner was unceremoniously removed in 1966, and this slightly smaller version of the previous Moonliner was built from the original 1955 blueprints. So what are your feelings about this new Tomorrowland compared to the previous iterations? I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't like the coloring of mm-hmm. it. I wish they brought the the original coloring back, but I don't know if that's because the Tomorrowland of my youth was so cool 
to it always it was always buzzing there's always uh it was an exciting place to go and they took so much away from it um didn't like that yeah yeah i agree and and we lost the mary blair you know um oh yeah girls so- as well mm-hmm. so I, 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 I go ahead i i also loved the circle vision you know i don't know if that's because i'm a, a nerd or, or what but i used to love to um i don't know it showed part of the u.s and even though we stood up it was just a, a very cool 3d not 3d excuse me 360 degree uh movie mm-hmm. yeah yeah i always enjoyed that one but um yeah i i i'm of all the realms at uh, at Disneyland, uh, Tomorrowland is my least favorite. And there are times I will visit Disneyland and not even go into Tomorrowland. Yeah. Um, now, now I enjoy the Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom much more than I do. Well, there's so much more. There's so much more space in that one, as you know, width-wise. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have the. You don't have the platforms like right up on top of you. You know, you don't have the tracks right on top of you. They were built a little closer to the to the buildings. Right, and that and that was you know, our if ours had been built that way, it probably would still exist. Although, according to Tony Baxter, part of the reason they closed down People Movers, nobody was riding it anymore. Um, according yeah. to the turnstile count, so. But um, well, wasn't it the highest? Um, didn't it have the highest death toll of everything too? People mover. Oh, oh yeah. Because probably because of stupid things people did, like jumping the out of stupid, it. Yeah, the stupid. Yeah, the teenagers and college students that would j- try and like scare each other by jumping from one to the other. Yeah, they get caught between the trains. Yeah. So, but it wasn't like it was staggering. I mean, it was staggering. No, death it, it, I think there anything. were like three or there were yeah. like three deaths. I think. Yeah, something like that. So anyway, but yeah, so hopefully they'll have big, bigger and better things to come when they redo Tomorrowland again. So which will be called Star Wars Land. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, well, on October 6th, Disneyland announced it would limit the hours of more than 20 of its attractions in an effort to save money on labor by staggering the opening and closing times of these attractions. Disneyland executives believe this would not only save labor costs, it would increase shopping and dining revenue. You can imagine the public reaction. It was negative and swift. Cast members are trained on how to deal with guest complaints <laughs> by suggesting alternate activities. What Disneyland management was unprepared for was the email campaign organized by fans through the ever-growing number of Disney fan sites on the internet. The email campaign generated negative press and Disneyland management canceled this cost-saving plan. Paul Pressler admitted, we definitely stubbed our toe on the operating hours. The construction of Disney's California Adventure outside the berm provided a distraction to what was going on inside the berm. So a preview center inside a specially constructed tent was opened on October 14, 1998, with scale models and concept artwork of the planned park. An observation deck allowed guests to view the construction site. 
In a tragic Christmas Eve accident, one Disneyland cast member and two guests were injured, one fatally, when a rope used to secure the sailing ship Columbia as it docked on the rivers of America tore loose the metal cleat to which it was attached. The usual hemp rope used to secure the ship had been replaced with a cheaper nylon version, which stretched and caused the metal cleat to come away from the ship. The cleat sailed through the air and struck the heads of two guests who were waiting to board the ship. Luann Fai Dawson, who is 33, of Duval, Washington, and his wife, Lu Tai Wong, who is 43. Dawson was declared brain dead two days later and died when his life support system was disconnected. This accident resulted in the first guest death in Disneyland's history that was not attributable to any negligence on the part of a guest. Rather, it was the result of a combination of insufficiently rigorous ride maintenance and an insufficiently experienced supervisor assuming an attraction operator's role. And it prompted a movement for greater government oversight of theme park operations and safety procedures. The resulting lawsuit awarded the victim's family the sum of $25 million. It was ruled that the staff in charge of the ship had not been trained properly, and Disney was called out for not allowing the proper medical personnel into the park after the accident, which might have helped to save Dawson's life. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Although, from what I heard from um, interviews at the time from... The injuries that Mr. Dawson sustained, I, they, they, they did, they did not sound like it was something he would have survived. From from what guests who were there and witnessed it said. So, um, anyway, the um, attendance at Disneyland continued its decline in 1998. It was down four percent to 13.5 million guests. In 1999, the Jungle Cruise launches were replaced with new ones that were four feet longer. Imagineer and Disney theme park horticulturalist Bill Evans convinced the designers to remove the canopied covers so guests could fully appreciate the view and the jungle experience. There were also rumors in Adventureland and on the internet that the Swiss family Robinson treehouse would be shut down and removed as it was showing signs of wear and tear from the decades of weather and guests. Fans united and began a Save Our Tree campaign. Tony Baxter wanted to save the tree as much as the fans. His idea for saving the tree and make it relevant was to (laughs) rebrand it to the upcoming 1999 animated film release, Tarzan. Said Baxter, the attraction was celebrating a movie from the 1960s and the people who grew up with it and know the history were well over 50 and they weren't going to be climbing around in the tree. We have to keep it relevant, and Tarzan gave us the opportunity to do it because it was a story the kids as well as their parents were familiar. In an attempt to stop the rumors and the campaign, park spokesman Tom Brochette stated the park had decided against making any changes because they felt the project could not be done in time for the film's premiere. The attraction closed and the Robinsons were evicted the very next day. In six months, the Imagineers were able to design and install the new Tarzan scenes, including the addition of a second rotted tree stump and an 18-foot-high suspension bridge connected to the original tree. 
This bridge would provide a transition between Adventureland and New Orleans Square, along with some great views of Adventureland. The suspension bridge entrance also retired an interesting piece of Disneyland trivia. Guests exploring the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse would climb 68 steps as they ascended into the tree, but descend 69 steps. The suspension bridge reversed guest flow, resulting in 72 steps up and 67 steps down. But there's a new piece of trivia. There are 48,192 leaves on the new tree. (laughs) (laughs) So Tarzan's Treehouse opened the same day the film debuted in July. Guests would now view three-dimensional scenes from the film, and special effects included Jane's sketch pad with animation from the film's principal animator, Glenn Keane. At the base of the tree is a camp that included a gramophone playing Swiss polka from the original attraction, and look for the homage to Beauty and the Beast in that setting. So, okay, are you... Tarzan Treehouse fans, or are you Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse fans? As soon as they install an elevator in that thing, um, I'm all over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that at um, the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, we have Swiss Family Robinson. Mm-hmm. I like the little mm-hmm. homage, but I think Tarzan's fine. It didn't bother me that they changed it, especially when they when they first opened it, and they used to have um, animals in there that you could with a little animal handler and oh right. my gosh, that was really, really cool. And then Tarzan was there until people acted really crazy, you know? Yes. Yeah. Until women started doing things. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then Captain Jack Sparrow came along to take care of that, <laughs> replace him. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually, I actually think Swiss family Robinson, while it was, I remember it from before while it was good, here, I actually like it better in Florida because it seems like the tree is to, the tree there was just so much more expansive because they mm-hmm. had the space, so it kind of fit a little better. But I like Tarzan and ours. I think it gives it a little more of a distinctive edge. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the camp scene, you know, where you can play the instruments. Yeah, you, know, you play the pots and pans and stuff. <laughs> what do you yeah. think, Michael? I, I just because I love the film so much, I prefer Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. So I'm happy they have it in Florida. They have it in other international parks as well. Um, but Tarzan is fine. I do wish, I think they need to upgrade it a little, maybe with a little more technology, maybe some audio animatronics or something in there. Um, I don't like, the, I do feel that just like the, Astro Orbiter in the entrance to Tomorrowland. I think that suspension bridge causes um, some guest backup yeah, where it's so. where it's at. But I do like the fact that it now there's more of a transition between New Orleans Square and the and Adventureland. Because remember, I for a long that- time it was just um, a row of poplar trees or something that did the transition. Oh, you're right. So um, anyway, so uh, so I so I tend to agree. I like that there's two different trees, um, but I do I am partial to the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse. So. Yeah, if they didn't have the Swiss Family Robinson um, treehouse at Walt Disney World, I would be upset then, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. then we would have no, you know, we wouldn't have it at all. 
which would be kind of cool. Yeah. So in 1999, the cost of a one-day adult admission was $39. The most common guest complaint was the long lines for attractions and shows. Now, the mm. Walt Disney Company executives had noted that the Alton Towers Resort, a popular theme park in the United Kingdom, had developed a virtual queue system, allowing guests to make a reservation and then returning to a much shorter line. This inspired Disney to create FastPass, which was first introduced at Walt Disney World in 1999 at its most popular attractions in the Magic Kingdom, Disney MGM Studios, and Animal Kingdom, then installed it at Disneyland on July 28, 1999 for a four-day test at Space Mountain. Disneyland management decided the test was successful and immediately initiated a plan to permanently install the FastPass system at Space Mountain, the Indiana Jones Adventure, Splash Mountain, It's a Small World, and Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin. The Disneyland experience would forever change. So, so do you prefer the park before FastPass or after FastPass? That's a tough question. Considering FastPass delays the queue somewhat, it it's good because we all know how to take advantage of FastPass and utilize them. But, you know, it makes the regular standby longs, lines longer mm-hmm. unnecessarily. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. Mm-hmm. Back before they had Fast Pass, we always had a, a system where we would go um, from land to land. So we would, you know, start down Main Street and go through Adventureland and explore that. And we would do that. With Fast Pass, people spend so much time running back and forth trying to get that next fast attraction. I think they miss out on on um, the the details mm-hmm. that that and the charm that's that's at Disneyland. They miss out on. That, for instance, in New Orleans Square, all that entertainment that they have over there, you know, the, the guys playing the the two guys playing jazz or the other um, musicians and other little things. I miss that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And and they don't and they also don't uh, experience the park as Walt and the original Imagineers had designed it to be experienced, you know, and um so I think that's disappointing. You know, it, it tells a story as you walk through it. Now people are dashing through it right. to get to get to different places. And and and, it, and Nancy's right. I think it artificially increases the standby lines, which they're seeing now in Magic Kingdom as they're uh, you know as they're adding more and more fast pass um, and having machines. to add interactive cues to keep people busy. Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1999, 13.5 million guests visited Disneyland. The world was looking forward to a new century and a new millennium filled with new hope, new promise, and Y2K. And Disneyland was looking forward to a millennium that would prove to be filled with successes and failures. And we'll look at that new century on our next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland. 
Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway, Disneyland, The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, Tony Baxter, First of the Second Generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien, and I found several articles on websites such as Disney Avenue, Disney Day by Day, Disney Parks Blog, Geeks of Doom, Jim Hill Media, Theme Park Tourist, Theme Park Adventure, and Yesterland that all went into this um, episode. And I'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her invaluable work in locating the additional material I needed for this episode. And remember, yes, and remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, ladies. That's going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Diz Unplugged podcasts this week. And, of course, we will be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is, whoa, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening. <laughs>